0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello, this is Chris Safarova, CEO of strategytraining.com and termsconsulting.com. Welcome to another great session. We're here with Caroline Baklus. Carolyn is a gifted strategist and one of America's most respected voices on women's leadership and their relationship with power. Welcome, Caroline. So great to have you with us today. Thank you.
2: I'm delighted to be here.
1: Carolyn, you went from Wall Street banker to world traveling diplomat, including a person who lived in Azerbaijan and Russia in 1970s. So you have such an incredible backstory. So let's start there. Maybe you could tell us briefly your story, how you ended up doing what you're doing today.
2: Well, let me give that a try. Now that I'm 70, it's hard to be brief over 70 years, but I'll give you the cliff notes. My journey actually started when I was eight years old. I think there's a time for everyone where they remember the moment they pick their head up and realize that there was a bigger world out there. That they and that's the beginning of leaving childhood, no matter the age, when you begin to realize, oh, I'm part of something bigger. So for me, that was 1960. Uh, John F. Kennedy was running for president. The we were in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, other challenges that we had in the country, and John F. Kennedy said, "Ask not." what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Well, that question, combined with watching my mother, who was one of only two women in her law school class at the University of Chicago in the 1940s, had me wake up to say, oh, they're talking to me. Uh, And uh, there's an opportunity to be my own hero in my own journey. And that's when I began to start thinking ahead. And as far as I could think of at eight was, where am I going to go to college at 18? And I ended up studying Russian and going to the Soviet Union as a diplomat at 21. But what I will say is while I was there, I had an opportunity to um, I was stationed in Tashkent, and then uh, Baku, Azerbaijan, and then Moscow. But while I was in Moscow, I went and talked to all the American businessmen. And at that time, there weren't that many. We were sort of new into East-West trade. And I began to ask questions. And what I realized is that it would take me 30 years as a diplomat before anyone would ask me my opinion. And that it was really in the private sector where I could become as powerful as possible as early as I was ready. And it's when I really got, because East-West trade was beginning to happen, that the private sector really could be an engine of transformation. And I wanted to follow the lead of my mother and John F. Kennedy and be a hero in my own story and be able to be powerful on behalf of others. And that's what brought me into business. So I ended up being, I went, I left Russia when I was done with my assignment to get my MBA. And then I became an international banker and then a Wall Street banker and then a management consultant, uh, a professor, a philanthropist. And oh, by the way, a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. Uh, and, uh, what I will say is, even though I've done it through different roles, I've always felt that my real job is how do I become as powerful as possible in order to empower others and make my own contribution to a world that works. And, uh, I've been doing that job, I think for 70 years.
1: That is so incredible. Caroline. we have so much in common because we both have connection to Azerbaijan. My father was from Azerbaijan. You lived there for six months, I think You mentioned, before we started recording. You used to be a banker. I used to be a banker. I used to work for a very large bank in Canada, and I was responsible for managing a portfolio over $1 billion. I used to be a management consultant. You as well. We both lived in Russia. Such an incredible connection. Rare to meet people with so many points where you connect in terms of your backgrounds. I have to ask, because I think that everyone listening now, many people would be very curious to know when you moved from America to Azerbaijan and Russia in 1970s, that was a completely different world. It was like moving to another planet. What was it like? What was your impression?
2: Well, first of all, let me share with you what I was doing, which is my job was to tell America's story. And there were 20 of us handpicked to travel to the Soviet Union and build a life-size American home where 10,000 Soviet citizens would come through every day. And there the 20 of us would be to talk about America. So for, uh, I want your listeners to know this was in the middle of the Cold War where information was not flowing back and forth. Um, uh, most citizens could in the Soviet Union could not travel. And we were bringing in, in, in essence, forbidden information into a closed society. And there was such a hunger to learn, and so many stories about the way things are, whether they were true or not. So it was in that context that I was there. And my greatest, uh, so, uh, and it was at a time, um, it was a difficult time where. Um, The Soviet Union was already having strains and cracks about the ineffectiveness of a centralized planned economy. And I was out in the in the autonomous republics who were uh, where their identity, the issue of identity was also challenging. So what I I just wanted people I wanted to paint that picture uh, that um, we were. We were in foreign territory, (laughs) but there was such a hunger to learn about America. Um, And uh, the other thing I would just say is, for me, that's where I learned how to communicate. Because what I realized is no one would believe anything I had to say. I mean, we had this backdrop of an American home. There was way too much propaganda and um, misinformation. And I was speaking in a language that was not native to me. And what I found was how important it was within the first 60 seconds of interacting with people that you could build a field of trust, that you could speak heart to heart with someone, because there is no transformation in the information. Transformation only comes from heart-sponsored communication, a real commitment to connect. Um, And so that was um, among the many lessons I've learned as a 21-year-old, that was a really important lesson to learn that has really helped me in terms of my commitment to be a leader at home, at work, and in the world.
1: That is incredible. And did you have to communicate in Russian?
2: Yes. In and Russian. That also, and
1: Even if you study it, it's very difficult to communicate in another language.
2: Extremely difficult. And I also was communicating with people, many people whose first language was not Russian either. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Uzbek or it was Azari or, um, or something like that. Um, so... Uh, although I must say, learning how to communicate in a language is not your own is a wonderful experience because you really need to be present. You know, there's a lot of research that says that only 8% of communication is the words, and so much is body language and also energy. Uh, You know, I think uh, you probably have had this experience. You can go into a room and no one's speaking, but you can know immediately whether they were just laughing or whether they were just in an argument because you can feel what was really the nonverbal communication. So to be able to talk to 10,000 people a day in a language that I was not a native speaker and had only studied for three years in college, uh, was a great experience of learning how to be present, meaning that it's really, it's the wisdom of your presence, as opposed to performance that really creates heartfelt communication.
1: That is so true. And did you have to speak to people in groups, I assume, because 10,000 people is a lot of people to talk to.
2: we had to, there would be um, 200 people at a time. Um, In fact, I've just, uh, I've done a TED Talk that people can find on the TED platform about the power of story and about the power of us and the power of me. And I actually have showed some pictures of me back then to describe what this situation is. Um, But so imagine a life-size American home and I had two major stations. You could either find me in the modern living room or you could find me in heating, ventilating, and air conditioning. Those those are the two backdrops. But what I must say about my station, the modern living room, what I really loved was that I had a record player and I would play the Beatles' White Album all the time, including back to the USSR. Uh, And of course, no one, the Beatles was not allowed, but I had the record player and the record. So uh, that was a very uh, popular station. I will tell you that.
1: I can imagine. Such an incredible story. I think you can write a script and make a movie out of your time.
2: (laughs) Oh, there's so much I could do. And I will say just one other thing is um, I was born jewish and that was a very difficult time and because the soviet because our state department chose the 20 of us we were one of a kind so i had um people would know about who we were through the voice of america or the bbc or radio Free europe so people would know how to find me and that was very touching for me at 21. Um, to be able to really experience the power of policy and politics on people's individual lives. Uh, There was no more um, childish understandings of the world when you have the opportunity to actually experience policy and politics on individual human lives.
1: Karolan, and other than communication, do you feel that this time in Russia, Azerbaijan, how did it shape you as a leader?
2: That's such a great question. You know, I think my entire life, Chris, is about how is power used honorably? And uh, I had the opportunity to... Uh, see that to see how um, how the the power of information makes a difference, the power of intention makes a difference, the power of attention makes a difference, and to be able to to really be committed to helping leaders know how to use power responsibly and honorably. Uh, I was very struck. Uh, And I'll just share with you what it felt like. For me, being Jewish, being in the Soviet Union, um, and getting people to believe me about what life could be like, I really felt the responsibility of the fact that I might be um, by if people could believe me, then they could believe that there was another way and that would make them miserable. And then I could get on a plane and fly out and they couldn't. Uh, And so I felt a great responsibility to make sure that I was using information in a way that was of service, that I wasn't just letting them say, hey, I've got a dream and you don't and that's too bad. But how do I make sure that there's some kind of uh, connection, there's some kind of insight in the communication that would be of value to them in a generative way? And uh, that's what I mean by really having a, a real sense myself of how am I gonna use my power honorably and responsibly? It's not just an intellectual exercise.
1: And it just shows also the kind of person you are that you you had empathy and you had kindness towards these people because it's true. It was a difficult situation, and you had to share information that would empower them rather than bring them down
2: right. And I saw that all the time every day, uh, and uh, and and that's what I mean by you know uh, being really committed to have heart-based communications and not just give them information that, uh, that didn't empower them in some way.
1: Carolyn, and then you went into banking and you worked on wall street and that is a huge, huge change in scenery. Can you talk to us about that? What was that experience like and how that shaped you as a leader?
2: Well, I think, you know, uh, so I had different experiences in banking. Um, you know the uh, when I was at Citibank for ten years, uh, it was right at the beginning of um, the leverage buyout business. And I was right in the thick of it. And what I uh, realized was, you could lend money, but it's kind of hard to get it back. <laughs> so I really was able to understand value from a um, What does it mean to to hold for the long term? Like, how do you create value over time? Um, And how do you understand credit risk? And then I went to Wall Street and was involved in mergers, acquisitions, and takeovers. And that gave me a real appreciation for market risk and market value. Uh, and uh, when I left Wall Street um, because I felt that it was so much more about money as opposed to people. And I joined Ernst and Young as a partner. One of the reasons I did that was that a big responsibility of partners was to develop people, human capital. So all throughout, that journey, I kept expanding my understanding of how to create long-term value and at the same time understand the short-term value fluctuations of market risk and market value, the longer-term value of credit risk and buy and hold strategies, if you will, and then the fact that it's really about human capital. And all of that has, you know, we're now talking a 40-year period, um, allowed me to create a much more holistic understanding of, as a leader, how do you create value? And I'll just share one of my insights in looking back, is I think that there are three major the way I think about it, and when I work with leadership teams, that there are three major operating systems that leaders need to take responsibility for. The first is the hardware or the hard assets, you know, the infrastructure uh, and all of that. The second is the software, all of the processes um, that help get people to interact with the tangible and intangible assets. But the third system is what I call hardware, uh, which is what's the soul um, of the culture, and how do you take responsibility for the hardware, the software, and the hardware? Those three important operating systems to be able to really create long-term sustainable value. And that's been my inquiry throughout all of these different, amazing learning experiences that I've had.
1: Caroline, and you recently wrote a book. How did you decide specifically to write on the topic you selected? Because you had so many things that you could have picked, given your background, you have such a rich backstory to to mine for wisdom, advice, insights. Why this topic was the closest to you, to your heart?
2: That's also, yes, that's also a wonderful question. So let me go back to when I was eight years old and John F. Kennedy told me to show up for duty. That's when I created what I now call my first decade game, where I took responsibility for trying to figure out How do I become the hero I believe I'm called to be? And what has allowed me to continue to reinvent myself in all these different iterations is because I play a decade game. I imagine what's the change in the world that's longing to happen, and 10 years from now, from wherever now is, 10 years later, how will I know myself and be known by the people who love me and the people who count on me? Because that's the real job. The job isn't what anyone's paying me to do. The job is what is, why am I here? What's the change in the world that's longing to happen, that's calling for me to contribute. And 10 years from now, how will, what will I have learned? What experiences will I have already had and what kind of impact will I make? So the um, uh, the book is all about that. And I'll get to the book in a second because I want to just explain a little bit more, if I can, about the decade game. So imagine that you're the CEO, the chief experience officer of your life over the next 10 years, also imagine that you're the CIO, the chief investment officer. And you are the chief investment officer of your time, your treasures, your talents, and your trust. And the only question is, how are you going to invest all of that? And then imagine again, that 10 years from now, you have the perfect picture of who you are. So for example, if you've ever had um, Play the jigsaw puzzle. You buy the puzzle for the picture that's on the front. And then you open it up and you put all the pieces down. And then you're convinced that you're probably missing a piece. But you're not. They're all there. And the only question is, how do you put them together in a way that creates this best possible picture? So that's the decade game. And oh, by the way, and if people have a Piece of paper and a pencil, write this number down 87,600. There's 87,600 hours in a decade. So if you sleep eight hours a night, which I do, and I recommend that if you want to look like me at 70, (laughs) that leaves over 50,000 hours. And it only takes 10,000 hours to become a world expert in something. So the game is okay. How do I wanna see myself 10 years from now? What impact will I make on my family, my community, my profession, my work, my society? And how do I want to invest that 50,000 hours plus my trust, my talents, and my treasures? The book is all about that, but I don't call it the decade game. I call it epic. Epic actually means a long-form story of daring do, daring to do. And uh, what I want is for people to know that they can write their own story. And whatever story that has been written about them or they've told themselves to date, is the. it gets you to where you are, but it won't get you to where you're going. If you want to live in a way that's worth dying for, you can choose the most epic story about yourself, knowing that you already have everything you need to have a life of meaning and purpose. The only question is how you want to invest your time, your trust, your talents, and your treasures. So this book is a story. It's part memoir. I'm a storyteller. It's part manual, which is guiding you on how to construct your own decade game board, taught through the stories of other people who have played the decade game. And it's part manifesto, because we are we are um, in an epoch time, E-P-O-C-H, There is so much that's happening all at once. Political crisis, economic crisis, educational crisis, healthcare crisis. There has never been a more exciting time for human beings to be alive. And to be able to know what to do about that um, is what the book is about. Choose Epic is what it's about.
1: So this is another connection we have because a big part of what we do within terms consulting, strategy training is we actually have a program called The Master Plan. And it's working with clients to help them figure out what is their life's work, what is their mission. And then on that, we build a big strategy for their life And we specifically focus on 10 years because it's manageable. So we have this 10 years vision and then we have a critical path towards that vision. And we figure out what is the comparative and competitive advantage, primary skill, all kinds of little elements. Just like you said, a puzzle. You have all the pieces. If you don't have a piece, we can help you figure out how to get that piece. But then you get all the pieces and you can create that picture. But you need to know what that picture is. This is such an important work. Thank you so much for doing it. Because one of the saddest things is to see a person who looks back on their life and realizes I had so much potential and I didn't realize it. I had that calling within me and I never even figured out what it was. And feeling that you wasted your life is one of the saddest things in life. So thank you. I totally agree with you.
2: Chris, I say that the two worst words in the English language are "if." only and the two most powerful words are imagine if and you know in my uh, I've done an uh in my 20 years as a partner at Ernst & Young uh I built a, a billion dollar healthcare business and use using design thinking from a strategic perspective with all my clients and uh in uh the, uh, the, the decade game is just taking all of that organizational design thinking and strategy work and applying it to yourself. Uh, and that's what I find fascinating is people are more willing to do that for their business and not themselves. And when I say themselves, it's because there's an integrated model that isn't just about what you're doing in the world. To be able to know that transformation is an inside job as a leader and to be able to identify what's your own personal work, your spiritual work, what are the stories you're going to let go of, What are the doubts in your head that need to be put to rest or put into the background as opposed to the foreground? What's keeping you from feeling the rapture of being alive? And the decade game starts there, but it then moves through what is your relationship with the people you love over the next 10 years? Because that's a very dynamic field. And then, what is going to be your relationship with the world in a way that's uniquely yours? Because what I like to recall people to is we know, and we've known for a long time, that nobody in the world has the same fingerprint as you. But we now know through technology that nobody in the world that's ever lived has the same eye pigmentation as you and the same vocal timber as you that's why face technology and voice technology work what does that mean it means no one who's ever lived can see the world the way you see it can speak the truth the way you will speak it and can do what you can do and that's epic
1: it is it is and i think many people don't realize what a gift they are to the world they don't realize all the experiences, knowledge, talents, this unique combination that they possess, only they possess the unique solutions that only they can come up with because on, only they went through the experiences, had the connections, have the network, have the talents. It's incredible. And it is so empowering once you realize it. Carolyn, and when you work with clients, where do you see people experience challenges as they are playing the decade game?
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, to recognize that we actually don't live in our lives and our relationships. We live in the stories we tell or are told about our lives and our relationships. So we live in the conversations, not the reality. But the stories we tell are just fiction. They're just stories that we made up in order to make sense of things. So that's a really important thing to, to actually think about, You know, whether it's the stories of I'm not enough or the stories that I'm too much, which are two sides of the same coin. Um, how do you honor the stories, they got you this far, they kept you safe, but how do you let them go so you can tell new stories? So that's one challenge. Second challenge that people tend to get stuck on is they, they they, can't, it's hard for them to think out 10 years. Here's what's interesting. Research shows that you can look back and see how much you have changed in the last 10 years. And I would ask all of your listeners to just close your eyes for a second and think where you were 10 years ago how you felt what you were doing and how much you have changed in your life but research shows that people don't think they're going to be different 10 years from now so they don't they it's hard to imagine that the entire world inside you and outside can change in 10 years so that they don't think big enough and bold enough. You know, people dramatically overestimate what they can get done in a year and dramatically underestimate what's possible in 10. And I would say a third challenge is we've been educated to be attached to outcomes. I have to meet this goal. This is what success looks like. Uh, And the process of disconnecting from particular outcomes in order to be attached instead to possibilities, that's hard. One of the ways I like to describe it using design thinking is you cannot get there from here, but you can get here from there, meaning if you know where you're going, then any any next move is a good move because you know how you want to use it. You know what you want to learn. You know the filter in which you're going to understand it. So one, just to sort of repeat, letting go of the stories that no longer serve you. Two, becoming an epic storyteller in terms of being able to tell the big, bold, amazing, wonderful transformational story of 10 years from now. Um, And uh, uh, the the third is uh, being able to use design thinking, iterate, prototype, and be attached to possibilities, not outcomes. And that requires you to do a lot of trusting of the universe.
1: And can you speak a little more about how to use design thinking for our listeners who would not be very familiar with how can they incorporate that? What it really is and how they can use it for their when they set up a plan for their life.
2: Yeah. So, a couple things about design thinking. The first is trust your imagination. You know your brain. Is actually not that smart. It only knows what it knows. And uh, however, if you can imagine something and be specific in that imagining, your brain thinks you did it. And all of a sudden, you are looking at, uh, you are processing things not through the amygdala, Which is the part of your brain, which is, you know, the the fight, flight, or freeze. Because um, if you're only knowing what you know and then worrying about, well, what if I make the wrong mistake? Or what if that's not the right choice? Or what if this or what if that, obsessing about what the next step is, that's coming from a place of fear. But if you're using imagination, that's in a different part of your brain that's much more creative. And once you imagine it in specificity, your brain thinks you did it. And all of a sudden, a lot of the fears drop away so that you can think much more creatively today about the future. So that's one thing about design thinking is imagination. The second part of design thinking is prototyping. Well, let me, what if I tried this? Let me try this. Not being concerned it's the wrong step, but knowing that there is no such thing as the wrong step, as long as you're getting feedback. Because once you get feedback, um, you then have a sense of, okay, then what would be the best next step? Um, A third part of design thinking is prototype. Lots of experiments. Not too many eggs in one basket. Uh, So those are three of the ways to do design thinking. And then I would just add, those are sort of the traditional ways. Um, There's a reason I call the decade game a game and not a plan or a project, because it has to be fun. Because first of all, if you're not having fun, chances are you're playing someone else's game. But second of all, the harder the problem, the more fun you have to have to solve it. Because again, uh, by being able to throw, uh, to, by being able to pl- um, put ideas into play and play with ideas, gives you a better chance that you'll be able to turn hope into action. Because play, being playful without fear um, again, opens up creativity and allows you to allow in ideas and test things that otherwise you might not have done.
1: This is so true, Caroline. And it's also when you are stressed, your brain doesn't function as well as it can. And also our life is happening in this moment, right now. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, even next hour is not guaranteed. So we have to be here, be present. And when we are present, we don't have fear about the future and we don't have regret about the past. So it's actually not that hard to then see it as a game and really enjoy the ride.
2: You know, I love that, Chris. I I like to say that there's a difference between wishful thinking and thoughtful wishing. And by now, our listeners have an understanding of how I like words. Yes. But wishful thinking keeps you in the past. If only I had. I wish I did. I wish I could have. I wish I didn't. Or puts you in the future without a commitment to action. Oh my God, I wish I was king or I wish I was empress. But there's no action and commitment associated with it. Unlike wishful thinking, thoughtful wishing keeps you right here, but it allows you to take action on what you can do. What's one little step that you can do that has a little bit of that magic, of that future dream. And the difference between wishful thinking and thoughtful wishing is thoughtful wishes can come true.
1: and. One of the challenges I see people experiencing when they go through the process is figuring out what is their life's work. And we have specific exercises that we do, deep dives to try to figure it out. I was wondering, what are your approaches? Because this is the foundation. And it is incredible that you had clarity at eight. But for many people, I see it is a struggle, even at 38.
2: Or 58.
1: Or 58. (laughs)
2: Well, so you know that's so fascinating when you think that that's probably the most important question in the world: why are you here? And most people can't answer it. (laughs) Um, So, well, first of all, I love that you have this whole mastery process. uh, That's just fantastic. Uh, One of the things I do in the decade game is um, I have a, a a way of helping people get to this answer and it's it's it goes like this to answer the question how do you how does the world get better in a way that you believe you've been called to contribute so there's many different ways the world gets better maybe the world gets better if it was kinder or more literate or more healthy or more just, but there's probably something that came to you early in your life that sort of broke your heart, because it broke your heart, and that made you want to heal your heart and heal the heart of the world. And once you can identify that there's there's a a meta shift in the world that if only this could happen, the world would be better. It would be a world that works and you believe it's your life's work to make your unique contribution. So for example, for me, again, I was touched by my mother and JFK, but what what I was really saying, what I was really seeing even as a young girl was that leaders make a difference and courageous leaders willing to use their power honorably can change the world. So my purpose, my life's work became making whatever was my unique contribution to helping courageous leaders find their magic, trust their magic, and use that magic honorably. And that has become the song line in my life. That's my life's work. And so once you know your life's work, you might be temporarily out of a project, but never out of a job. Because you're on the job from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep. Whether I'm thinking about myself, whether I'm interacting with my children or my grandchildren, whether I'm interacting with my clients, my life's work is to help courageous leaders, find their magic, trust their magic, and use that magic honorably. And different people have different, are able to identify, a. you know, yes, a world gets better in a particular way that I know I have always made my contribution and I want to continue to make it. Again, it could be around justice. It could be around heart. heart uh, it could be around equality. It could be around literacy. It could be around health. It could be around freedom. It could be around liberation, but it's something universal. And what I've experienced is the more personal, the more universal. So for you to be able to touch what it is that has driven you always, um, you're on the right track.
1: Caroline, and when you had this insight when you were eight, how did your mission iterate it over time? Did it iterate or did it kind of, I, I assume it would, because as an eight-year-old, you would not even have that vocabulary. So I wonder how did it change as you were going through your incredible journey?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, too. You've got lots of great questions. Uh, well. The uh, what people be able to see um, if they read the book is a frame of a decade game board that came into existence at thirty nine. So up until then, this the idea of sort of intuitively thinking about these things um, would guide me because I knew what the questions were that I'd be asking myself, but I didn't have. Um, I I didn't have it visually. And when I was 39, um, I was leaving Wall Street, I was getting a divorce, I was responsible financially for my children, and I didn't want to stay on Wall Street because it was all about the money, and uh it, it there wasn't there wasn't a heart in it for me. Um and I was trying to think about what would be the right next step. And that's when I created the format that's currently there. And once it became visualized for me, then it's just a question of updating it. Now, what never changes is the purpose. But what does change is how will I know myself 10 years from now? And to get specific and uh, create sort of an avatar for myself. Because what I find is your future self is a great co-designer with you about the next 10 years versus co-designing the next 10 years with your past self. Your past self is still too in the old stories. Your future self, who you are becoming, already knows you, but she knows things you don't know. So... Um, I literally sit down every 10 years and I create a new decade game board. The It does not change the purpose, but what does change is what I call the mission. How will I know myself and be known by the people who love me and the people who count on me 10 years from now? So I create a new avatar. She becomes my co-designer. And then she and I collaborate on how do we want to invest my time, my treasure, my talents, and my trust, in terms of what are the new experiences I need to have spiritually, relationally, and in the world? Uh, What are the new things I want to learn? Who do I want to learn from? Who needs to learn from me? And then we're off to the races.
1: That is incredible. Carolyn, and you were able to combine very successful career and being, for example, a partner at a management consulting firm, it's a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. Working on Wall Street, being a banker, a lot of pressure. And you managed to have that, combine it with a huge purpose, aligning your life with doing your life's work, and also having a family. And that is a big challenge for people. What would be your advice on how to stay balanced?
2: Well, I don't. Uh, I don't use the term balance. Uh, I use the term integration. And uh, what I want to do is I want to tell you a story if I can. So in my decade game, fifty to sixty. um I'm at EY, I'm building a global health business. Uh, I'm 56 and my husband finds out he has three months to live.
1: I'm so sorry.
2: And he um, he turned to me, he was a, an amazing pastor of a very large church in Manhattan. We had a thousand families. And he turned to me and he said, okay, I'm the battlefield, Carolyn, and you're the general. So I need you to go to work because I, 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 I've got too much to do. I can't get it done in three months. Now, he ended up living three years before he passed away. Uh, he was able to finish the book he was writing, write two other books, and be able to say the goodbyes he wanted to say. And die the way he wanted to die, according to his theology. I spent a lot less time at work, a lot more time helping him die well, dealing with the congregation, the church, and all the families, dealing with his children, um, dealing with his mother, dealing with my children. He was my children's stepfather. And in the three years he was dying, Those were the three most profitable, highest growth years of my business. Why? Because I was showing up more vulnerable. I was giving more room for my team to step up. I didn't have to have all the answers. I was trusting them more. I basically was learning how to be a better leader, while at the same time, I was learning how to be a better leader at home and in my community all inspired by this purpose of helping courageous leaders find their magic trust their magic and use that magic honorably because courage comes from the word core, heart and it means to go forward with your heart in your mouth at times of doubt fear and uncertainty so I was on that journey and the decade game allows you to know that it's only one journey that becoming the leader you long to be at home at work and in the world is the same journey and it doesn't make any difference where you're practicing it if it's inspired by your purpose which is what is your unique contribution to a universal purpose that would make the world better then it actually liberates you because you're on the job from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep. So um, I, I felt that in those three years, I was living my purpose every single second. And I will tell you something. My husband died in my arms. We had all the children around us. And on the second after he passed away, I started to clap and give him an ovation and give all of us a standing ovation because we did amazing work, absolutely amazing work. And oh, by the way, the business did just fine because I had learned so much about leadership in those three years.
1: I'm so sorry you had to go through it. I'm so sorry your husband had to go through it. And thank you so much for sharing this with us. Carolyn, we're getting close to wrapping up. One of my favorite questions to ask, and you probably mentioned so many of the insights already, but over the last few years, if anything else that come to your mind now, what were two, three realizations that changed the way you look at life? So I think, um,
2: the way I think about life, Chris, is that we have different stages in our life. Um, You know, we start out as children. The next phase is adolescence. And then comes adulthood. But adulthood comes in many different forms of adult. But I like to call the adult phase the warrior phase. And then there's the elder phase. And then lastly, there's essence. And you can't get to essence from warrior. You can't get to elder from adolescence. You've got to go through these different phases. So for me, to be age appropriate is my learning. And to know that at each phase, leadership requires a new transformation. So in my 60 to 70 game, what I knew was I needed to change my relationship with ambition. That ambition needed to show up as servant, not rock star. And, you know, helping my husband die well taught me that that was the work of the next decade. Um, I'm now 70. Six months ago, I got a um, a diagnosis of lymphoma.
1: I'm so sorry. Um,
2: it's, it's part of life, but it helps me know that this next decade, 70 to 80, um, I have a huge leadership opportunity. And when I say leadership, I'm talking about at home, at work, and in the world to change my relationship with time. Because I know that whatever comes next will be the phase of essence. And to be able to be in, that requires you to really continue to let go, to surrender, to trust, to just live in the present. That's not age appropriate if you're in 30 to 40, and that's not age appropriate at 40 to 50. It is age appropriate at 70 to 80. So being able to know what phase of life I'm in so that I can name the transformation, so that I can know that, uh, and by the way, I always believe that the next decade is the best decade yet. You know, to have that kind of optimism. Um, So I I would say, um, you know, learning how to Change your relationship with ambition is critical. Um, As particularly as people transition from big corporate jobs, you know, that have been so all consuming, to know that that has never been their job. That's just been an opportunity to learn how to be a great warrior. But then there's a time that you got to let go and let the, you know, figure out how am I going to give back and share my wisdom with the next generation. You know, part of being able to look at life over the longevity is a commitment to be a great ancestor, to be an ancestor of an age to come, um, so that when you know that every day has meaning and purpose.
1: I'm so sorry to hear about what you just shared. Carolyn. I really hope that that it will all be resolved. Because I think that doesn't mean that you cannot fix it, but maybe it's what is speaking in me, but I just really hope that you're going to be with us for a very, 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 very long time because well, I plan a on it instead of work.
2: <laughs> I do plan on it. And you know one of the reasons I wrote the book is um, to make sure that what I that this message, that isn't my message, by the way, it's just coming through me, is there for all time. You know, I have grandchildren. You know, I have, I have, uh, I just, my newest grandchild was born three weeks ago. Um, I want him to know me regardless. Um, But I would also say, you know, from every, um, you know, this new diagnosis, all it does is just deepen my gratitude. Uh, you know, we, you said it earlier on, we are a miracle. We are a gift. And uh, every day, I'm just, I'm, I'm not only grateful for the gift of me, but I'm grateful for the gift of others. Um, and, you know, when stuff happens, it just deepens gratitude. And that's a, you know, I'll go, uh, I'm willing to, uh, that's a gift. I'm willing to go over that.
1: I anything that you wanted to share, but I haven't asked, and also how people can learn more about you. Where can they get your book?
2: Yeah. So I think what I'd like to say is, the book is called "Epic: The Women's Power Playbook," but it really is for everyone. You know, we are, uh, we have masculine and feminine energy in us. It's really for courageous. Leaders uh, and because again, courage means heart, um, and so it's for heart-based leaders. I particularly focus on women because uh, I'm I'm more present to all the things that make it hard, and women have been trying to be leaders at home, at work, in the world, in um. Uh, in much greater numbers and for longer than men have. And so um, I think that we, I think we're all guilty and no one's to blame that we're in a world right now that has wounded masculine energy and distorted feminine energy. And we all need to do that healing. But I think if women in mass can do that healing of the healing, the wounded, masculine energy and distorted feminine energy that's in the zeitgeist, then we will be a huge gift and model for all the men that we love. Uh, people can um, there are a couple ways that people can engage with me. One is buy the book and buy it for Christmas or Hanukkah and give it to all the uh, women and men that you love. Uh, and you can do that on Amazon or Walmart or Barnes & Noble or you know any of the online bookstores. Um, I do teach a Decade Game Masterclass twice a year. It's a six-week virtual program. Uh, it starts in March. And if you go to MyDecadeGame.com, that's MyDecadeGame.com, you can learn all about the Decade Game Masterclass. Um, and if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to EpicWomen'sPlaybook.com, and any of your listeners feel free. You can email me at Carolyn at MyDecadeGame.com with any questions.
1: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for everything you shared, and for everyone listening or watching us. Thank you for being with us during this time, and uh, I am sure that you are taking away a lot out of this discussion. It has been packed with a lot of insights and life-changing, actually, insights. I'm so glad, Carolyn, that you mentioned feminine and masculine energy because I think this is something that very few people realize how important it is. And especially I see so many women suppressing feminine energy and trying to be this masculine warrior, but they can be feminine. Warrior, they don't need to be a masculine warrior. And once you stop trying to suppress feminine and allow feminine warrior or feminine, you can maybe call it something less stressful than warrior. Whatever works for every listener now for you listening to this. But once you start suppressing feminine energy, if you if feminine energy was predominant energy when you were born, it does incredible things you will stop feeling so much stress and you will get a lot more energy to dedicate the things that you were born to do.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we have have this huge opportunity to recognize, you know, guess what? Men and women are different. (laughs) Surprise. But women, we are the birthers, the nurturers and the mourners. That's a particular job that women do. And the knowledge and wisdom that we have cellularly as well as generationally uh, of being the birther, the nurturers, and the mourners, whether you have your own children or not, that wisdom is in you. And that is a specific contribution of women into the world uh, whether it's operating in their leadership at home, or at work, in the world, and I want women to trust that. I want men to trust it because men have it too. You know, you are you. <laughs> you have an X and a Y chromosome, <laughs> so use it.
1: <laughs> Thank you again, Caroline. Such a pleasure to have you with us, and good luck, everyone listening or watching. I'm looking forward to see you in the next session. Bye, everyone.